privilege for me, ha- me to have an opportunity to share with you today in the absence of Pastor Wade as we, as Joey's mentioned, let's continue to pray for him that he truly would, uh, he and his family would have a time of refreshing and renewing as they uh, spend this time together with family. <clears throat> today I want us to think about uh, two words, spending and investing. You know, we take our money and we either spend it or we invest it. And, you know, of course, we do some, uh, maybe it doesn't all go in the same place, but when we utilize our money, if we spend it, we'll never see that money again. But if we invest it, then it'll come back to us and actually reap some benefits. And we do the same thing in our spiritual lives. We're either going to spend it or we're going to invest it. And so I want us to take a look at investing our spiritual life today. And the scripture tells us of two men who were both named Saul, both of them from the tribe of Benjamin. And I see a stark contrast in the lives of these two men. The first one was the Old Testament character of Saul, who became the first king of Israel, who started out very well. He was a humble man. He was tall and handsome. And God looked on him and he had Samuel anoint him as king. And the Spirit of God was upon him. But as he lived his life, he became more concerned about himself than he did obedience to God. He was a great soldier. As he was preparing to fight the Philistines, they were planning a sacrifice, and Samuel was delayed a bit, it seemed, and Saul offered the sacrifice that only the priest should have offered. And this displeased God, and he said, you would have had someone rule on your throne forever if you'd simply walked in obedience to God. But the kingdom was taken from him and passed to one whose heart was after God. Another time, he had been told by God to go and to defeat the Amalekites that everything was to be completely decimated, every man, every woman, every child, every animal. And when they came from that victory, they came with some of the best of the livestock, and even King Agag himself, the king of the Amalekites. He had listened to the people rather than to God. As David entered into his service, a time where David killed uh, the giant, Goliath, Saul himself unwilling to face him, and then as David became a a great leader uh, in the army, and he returned from victory after victory, and the people cried out, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul became overwhelmed with jealousy and a realization that 
David would become king rather than his son Jonathan. And he, sent, he spent time in envy and jealousy and fear and self-protection. And ultimately we see a king who took his own life having been wounded in battle. A king who did not end well because he became absorbed with himself because the Spirit of God had left him because of his disobedience and an evil spirit had taken over. In contrast to that, we see another Saul. A Saul of the New Testament, a Saul who began his life as a persecutor of of believers. But one day on a road to Damascus, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And he came to faith. And Christ called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul began to invest in the lives of folks. One of those people was Timothy. Paul endured a lot for the sake of the gospel. He faithfully served to the very end. And this young man, Timothy, he wrote him in 2 Timothy 2.2, and he says, These things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will in turn teach others. He wrote that from prison. Arrested because of his faith. To the very end, he was a faithful witness and investor in the lives of other people. If he couldn't be there in person, he was writing letters. In order that he could make a difference in the people that he had seen come to faith. So I want us to think about... Do you want your life spent chasing material things, popularity, power, leading out of pride and fear rather than humility and a confidence in the God of the universe? Or do you want your life to look more like Paul? Who at the end of his life was able to say, I have fought the good fight. And I look forward to the crown of righteousness which awaits me. Which one would you rather be? God wants us to be like Paul. Our passage today is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning with verse 10. You see, when Paul said, These things that you have heard from me entrust to faithful men, what are these things? And I think as we read further into chapter 3, we discover a nice list of what these might be. And I want us to talk about them today. If you're physically able, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of the word. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for your word. Guide our time together to now that it would be for your glory and our good. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and so there in, in verse 10, as we think about uh, what we, some of the things that we might need to be passing on to others, we see a good list of them there. But I think, first of all, we need to understand that the Bible clearly teaches that we are to bear fruit and make disciples. Jesus, in what we call the Great Commission, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. See, we are commanded to make disciples. But it's also modeled for us. We see a progression of disciple-making taking place. You see, Jesus modeled it first. As he gathered 12 men around him and he spent significant time and invested in them, living life together with them, preparing them to be the New Testament church leaders. As that church comes into fruition, we find a young man named Barnabas. His real name's Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because it means encouragement. Son of encouragement. You see, Barnabas was an encourager. He was a man who invested in others. He sold a piece of land. We find that in, in uh, Acts as we begin to look at the New Testament church. And he, he brought the proceeds from that sale and laid it at the disciples' feet. They were sharing everything in common. He was making a difference in the lives of others. But it doesn't stop there. For you see, after Paul's salvation, he spends some time in Damascus and he's preaching faithfully the gospel there. And he comes to Jerusalem and the other apostles are afraid of him. They remember the time that he was persecuting Christians. And Barnabas comes and he Said, and he, he bears testimony to the other apostles that Barnabas indeed met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he has been faithfully preaching the gospel in Damascus. He encouraged him. He came alongside of him. Later Saul went to Tarsus. But as Jews were being persecuted and scattered across the, the area there, word came to some of the believers in Jerusalem that there were some Gentiles being saved in Antioch. 
And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch to see what was going on. And Barnabas found that truly the Holy Spirit was upon these people. And he encouraged them. And he went to Tarsus to get Paul. Saul. And they came and they began to teach and preach there in Antioch for a significant period of time. And then as the church in Antioch was praying and fasting, God said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to do the work to which I've called them. And they sent them out on a missionary journey. And we say Barnabas as the leader early on, and then Saul or Paul becoming the first mentioned of the pair. And ultimately Paul finds a young man named Timothy, and he invests in him, and one day he sends him to Ephesus to lead the church there. And then while Paul is in prison in Rome, he's writing this letter to this young man, continuing to encourage him and to invest in him. Paul, I mean, uh, Timothy, those things that you've learned from me along the way, entrust them to faithful men. You see, not only are we commanded, but we see a model of disciple-making, of reproduction that, that goes from one generation to the other. Model for us in the Word of God. We need to take seriously the task that we have to be involved in the disciple-making process, investment in others. And so as we now think about, okay, what are those things that we're to invest in them? What does that look like? And in verse 10, there in 2 Timothy 3, You, however, have followed my teaching. You see, these are people that Paul is investing in. He says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. See, right there is a list of things that we need to be involved with other people, making sure that they understand God's plan for what all of these things should look like. You know, my conduct can be most anything, but it needs to look like Christ. And so let's break those down a little bit. The first one that Paul mentions there is teaching. It's important, first of all, that our convictions, the truths we believe in, be accurate and biblical. There are a lot of people out there in this world today that are teaching all kinds of things. But if we're truly going to make an eternal impact, we've got to make sure that we know the Word of God and that we're teaching the Word of God and that what we're teaching lines up and is derived from the Word of God. That's critically important because that's the very foundation of a disciple-making process is the Word of God. And so our convictions, the truths we believe, must be accurate and biblical with the text. And then our outward life is a reflection of our inward convictions. We need to understand that the way we live our life 
truly says something about what our true convictions are. You know, I could probably ask anyone in this room, do you believe that it is the church's responsibility, our responsibility, to preach the gospel to the entire world, to all nations? And you would say yes. Yet the statistics tell us that 80% of church members have never shared the gospel with Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with anyone. Not even their next door neighbor, much less someone in Africa or Tunisia or wherever it might happen to be. You see, the reality that a person is lost and condemned to eternal separation from God unless they confess their sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and enter into relationship with Him. If that's a reality, a core belief that you have, then it should be demonstrated by the way you live your life. If you are not sharing your faith, it basically means that you don't really believe that they're okay. That they're not okay without Jesus. That's what it says. So we need to understand that our outward life is indeed a reflection of the convictions that we have. And you can apply that to any area. And so... As we move on, we need to teach the Word of God formally and informally in small groups and one-on-one. We need to be looking for every opportunity that we can to be investing and teaching others. You know, it starts with our children. We teach our children. We teach our grandchildren. We look for other opportunities to to teach, whether it be small group or one-on-one. We don't have to lead a connect group to be effective teachers. We simply need to be investing in those people, sharing the Word of God with them, modeling the Word of God with them. And then next we need to pray the teaching into people's lives. I pray all the time that my children, certain ones of them at least, will internalize some of the things that I've taught them. You know, I've, I've done all I can do. I've shared the truth from the Word of God. They know right and wrong, but ultimately it's going to be God at work in their life to draw them and to discipline and, and to come in, do what He needs to do to bring them to where He wants them to be. So those that we disciple, whether they be our children or whether they, whoever they might be, we need to be praying because prayer is the greatest weapon that we have. As we teach and and fight the battle. And then we model our teaching by the way we respond to issues of life. Someone, you know, I, I often get asked, why does this happen? You know, how can God use this? If nothing more, as you face and walk through trial and tribulation of life whether it be a tragedy in your life, whether it be an illness, whether it be a broken relationship, it doesn't matter what it is, you can be assured that somebody is watching and you are teaching them something very real as they watch. You may not know. You may not know the results of all of that in this life. But if for no other purpose 
than to show them the capacity to walk in faith in the midst of very difficult days, God may take you through that trial. So how are we going to respond to it? We teach people as we walk through the the trials and struggles and circumstances of life. So Paul says one of the things that you need to be passing on is our teachings. The teaching of the Word of God. And we do that through teaching by prayer and by modeling. Secondly, he says, you know my way of life. That's our conduct. You know, if if our conduct does not line up with the, the message that we're trying to get across, then we're not going to be very effective in teaching It's impossible to divorce lifestyle from doctrine. It's been several years now, but Wade did a a message that he entitled, Doctrine on Fire. And the reason it's on fire is because when we have an accurate scriptural belief about something, a doctrine that is, is true to the Word of God, it cannot help but compel us to action. You see, many people that think they're saved and are not are lost and think they're saved because they have an improper doctrine of salvation according to the Word of God. You can take Romans 10, 13, and it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there are people out there, God, please save me. I don't want to go to hell. But there's never been a change in their life. There's never been a brokenness over the sin in their life. Never been a repentance over that. They're simply looking for fire insurance. That's an improper doctrine of salvation. Because you go back to Romans 10, 9. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible says, repent and be saved. You've got to look at the Scripture in whole and understand that, that salvation is not simply crying out because you don't want to go to hell because things seem to be difficult right now, but it's a surrender of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and a commitment to walk in obedience to Him. There's going to be a change in your life. So we must have a proper doctrine in order that it drives an appropriate conduct as we seek to walk in obedience to God. We have to let people into our lives. You see, our teaching... And the way we live our lives, we can't just simply be an example. That's where it starts. But we've got to bring people into our lives. We've got to do life together with them. We've got to be willing to, to share with them life experiences in order that they can see how we relate to our wife, how we relate to our husband, how we relate to our children, how we relate to coworkers. You know, what do we do when uh, the golf ball goes over there and it's supposed to go over there? You know, how do we do life? We've got to let them into life with us. Jesus didn't change lives just by what he taught, but also by the way he lived his life. Look in John chapter 1 with me.
I'm going to begin reading with verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. You see, Jesus didn't simply answer their questions. He called them alongside of him. Come and see. Where do you stay? Come and see. Later on, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus invited people into his life. And he, he made an impact on them by the way that he lived his life. You know, they saw him as he cast out demons, as he calmed the sea, as he told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. You see, he, he was involved with them. We must be approachable. We've got to, Jesus... As they were following him, he turned to them. You see, he invited them to be a part of his life. We've got to be very approachable. We've got to get to doing life together with folks. And so we, we, we need to be passing along teaching, teaching of the Word of God. We need to make sure that we're teaching people the proper conduct in life, a conduct that's based on the Word of God. And then thirdly, Paul speaks of of purpose. God's purpose for our lives is to glorify Christ. If you go all the way back to January when Wade was preaching uh, what he calls a vision sermon, uh, one of the things he talked about, our purpose, was to glorify Christ. And uh, the gospel is to be proclaimed in Jesus' name. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay into the, in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, he sends them into the city to, to, to be clothed by the Holy Spirit in order that they might go and be a faithful witness to him, in order that the name of Christ would be glorified among the nations. You see, his purpose was to glorify Christ. You know, at that time, Wade uh, said we glorify Christ by our worship and our witness. I've changed witness to we glorify Christ by our worship and making disciples. I think they're the same thing because we're called to make disciples. 
And that begins with the witnessing process, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then beginning to, to baptize them, to unite them with the body of Christ, and then teach them all things. Teach them to observe all things. And so, John fifteen eight says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. You see... God wants us to show evidence of our discipleship. And we do that by bearing fruit, by making disciples. You know, certainly the, allowing the Holy Spirit to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our life is a part of, of bearing fruit. But ultimately it means that we're going to be reproducing a Christ-likeness in the lives of other people by our investment in them. Because bearing fruit is not, it's, it's got to be about a reproducing process. An apple tree produces apples, an orange tree, oranges, and a banana plant, bananas. A follower of Jesus Christ should be producing other followers of Jesus Christ. And so, our purpose. We, will find, we find true meaning and fulfillment and purpose in knowing Christ and making Him known for all His glory. Paul knew what his purpose was in the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, as he introduces the letter, as he greets them, he says, it's from Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He knew what his calling was. And in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he goes on to say, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And we see progression even further as we look in, in Romans uh, 15.20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. You see, Christ, I mean, Paul's passion is that the gospel is going to go to the places, not just where it's been preached some, but where it's never even been preached, where there is no witness. He has a heart for the nations. So our purpose must be to get involved in God's plan and purpose to have His name glorified among the nations. That doesn't mean that every one of us are going to spend time in a foreign country somewhere. It might well be, but the reality of it is, is that God has a way that every one of us can be involved in His mission through praying and giving and going and nurturing. There's a way for every one of us to be involved, and we need to have a heart to be involved, fulfilling God's purpose to which He's called us. John 15 speaks of bearing fruit. Jesus did not save you. He did not save me simply that we might be saved. He saved you and me in order that others would be saved through our witness and our disciple making. He never intended for it to stop with you and me. I am grateful that I'm saved. But when I think of the fact that Jesus died for me, if I stop right there, I've not finished. Jesus did die for me. But he died for me in order that when I become reconciled to him, someone else will hear 
the good news of Jesus Christ. So we need to be serious about our purpose. Woodrow Wilson said, I would rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. You see, we can go, we can, we can take on a lot of causes in this life. But the cause that is the cause of, of God, that the name of Jesus Christ be glorified among the nations, it will ultimately succeed. When, the, when Jesus comes again, all of these other things will not matter, I can assure you. And so he speaks of teaching. He speaks of our purpose, our conduct. And then fourthly, he speaks of our faith. Faith is only as valid as its object. We can put our faith in a lot of things. Unfortunately, we even put our faith in ourselves sometimes. And Jesus said in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. But we settle for what we can do for ourselves when we could have all that God desires to give us. God has proved himself faithful. He's kept his promises. And he continues to work in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And we can trust him. So, it's a val- he's a valid object of our faith. We learn faith through the trials and storms of life. In James chapter 2, verse 21. James is speaking of faith. Faith without works being dead. What true faith looks like. But let me just show you something. There in in verse 22, you see that, all right, I'll start with verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. What he's saying there is when we walk in obedience through the difficult times in life, when we don't understand everything that's going on, but we trust God with a blind faith that that says that our conviction truly is that God is the God of the universe that created everything. He is sovereign and in control, and I'm going to trust him regardless of what this might look like. When we walk in obedience like that, then our faith becomes completed or perfected, depending on your translation. You see, when Isaac, well, when, when uh, Abraham, when God came to him and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to go to a mountain that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. This was a son of promise, the only son that he had, the only way in which God could fulfill the purposes that he had to make Abram a great nation. Yet what did Abraham do? He said he rose early the next morning and he took two of his servants and his son Isaac and they departed. You see, 
we learn through those trials of life how to walk in faith. And even when we don't understand, we must choose to be obedient and God will complete our faith. There was an American missionary in Africa wanted to translate the English word faith into the local dialect. He could not find its equivalent. So he went to an old sage who was himself a fine Christian for help in rendering the needed word into understandable language. The guru studied it and finally said, Does it not mean to hear with the heart? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the scripture tells us that the heart is desperately wicked, and we have to be careful here. But what he means, being a believer himself, he has a heart that's in tune with God's purpose and will. He's in, in tune with who God is, a God that we can trust, a God that is faithful, a God that cons- is concerned about you and me, a God that demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A heart that's in tune with Him, it means that when we listen with our heart, whatever God says, it's going to move us to action. That's what faith is. It's hearing in such a way that we don't just gain knowledge, but that we move forth with action. Our heart is touched and changed, and we become obedient to what God tells us to do. So we need to learn to walk in faith. You know, we struggle with it ourselves. How in the world are we going to teach others? How are we going to disciple others to walk in faith? We've got to walk alongside of them. Let them see our struggles. Let them see the choices that we make. And then encourage them and, and teach them as they walk through life and, and make those choices as well. So faith. And then the next thing that that Paul mentions there is patience. You've seen my patience. Now, Paul didn't strike me as a patient man. But he was. You see, biblical patience is not a complacency that waits, but it's a courage that continues in hard places. You know, it's, it's not like just sitting down on the stool there in the, in the, the mall waiting uh, for your wife to get through shopping. You know, that's, that's patience of a sort. But the kind of biblical patience that we're talking about is the patience that David showed when he had been anointed king and Saul was chasing him, seeking to kill him. And he spent years in the wilderness and in caves and in foreign countries avoiding being put to death by Saul. And on several occasions even had the opportunity to take Saul's life, but he refused to touch the Lord's anointed. That's the kind of patience I'm talking about. A patience that says, I'm going to wait on God's time and I'm going to trust God in this situation. And in His timing and in His way, He will accomplish His purposes. It reminds me of Joseph who was shipped off and sold into captivity down in Egypt, began to work for Potiphar, and was to, his, he, his wife, Potiphar's wife lied about him and had him put in jail, and he spent years there, and he interpreted the dreams 
of the chief cook and the, I wanted to say bottle washer, but he was the uh, taster. <laughs> and when he had accurately interpreted those dreams, and he said, now when you're restored to your king's service, remember me. And he was forgotten and spent more years there. But ultimately, in God's timing, he was exalted to a place of leadership and saved the nation of Israel. That's the kind of patience that we're talking about. It's a patience that allows us to endure to the very end regardless of the cost. It does not describe a passive, fatalistic resignation, but a victorious, triumphant, unswerving loyalty to the Lord in the midst of trials. It's okay to to wonder what God's doing, to ask Him, what are you doing here, Lord? But at the same time, you place your loyalty in Him and know that some way or another, He's going to use it for His glory and your good. And you're going to trust him in the midst of it. That's the kind of patience that Paul is talking about here. And then back to your notes, it enables us to stick to the task no matter what the cost. And then he mentions love. If we go to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, we see what love looks like. I've already mentioned one verse in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. You see, that's kind of a biblical love that we're talking about. A, a life that means that everything that I am, everything that I have, I will give in order that you might be benefited. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13 there. <clears throat> love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on his or her own way. Love is not irritable. Now the reason I said his or her because you see in your blanks, you have some blanks in your notes. Put your name there everywhere it would be Love. And it gives you a good opportunity to look at your own life and say, do I really love like Christ would have me love? You see, Frank is patient and kind. I'm not so sure he always is. Frank is not arrogant or rude. Frank does not insist on his own way. Oh, yes, he does. Not proud of it. But you see, we need to put our name there and just see. Do you truly love like Jesus wants you to love? If you want to prepare disciples for service... We have to get involved with their dirty feet. <clears throat> you got to love them. Jesus, 
<clears throat> as he ate the Passover meal for the last time with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper, he girded himself with a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. And when he had finished, he says, you need to, to do this, wash one another's feet. He meant to serve one another with a genuine love. You see, ministry is messy. If you're going to make a difference in someone's life, you're often, excuse me, you're often going to encounter some sin that is disgusting to you or shocking to you. You're going to be dealing with folks that are, are, are struggling with broken relationships and addictions and sins of all sorts. One of the very things that Jesus was criticized of was that he ate with sinners. You see, we're going to have to get a little bit dirty. We're going to have to invest in them with a genuine love. Because people don't really care what you believe until they believe that you care. You cannot disciple a person you do not love. Because they're the first ones to know it. And if they don't think you care about them, if they don't know that you love them, you're teaching them a false gospel. So, the last thing we're going to cover today that Paul talked about was We've got to teach them about persecutions and sufferings. Yuck, do we have to go there? You see, we like to think that we could do all of this without any struggles and, and tribulation. But the reality of it is, is that a biblical worldview dictates that we expect persecution and suffering. The very fact that Paul mentioned it. He says that we are also going to suffer. <clears throat> you know, back to verse 11, he says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. You see, we need to understand that we're going to suffer, that we're going to have trial and tribulation in this life. We're going to be persecuted. But from all of them, the Lord will deliver us. It may not be in this life, but ultimately He will deliver us. John 16, says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus himself in John 16 says, in this world you will have tribulation. Why in the world if Jesus Christ himself, who was perfect, never sinned, was persecuted, do we think that we should be exempt from it? We need to understand that a biblical worldview dictates that we expect persecution and suffering. Now, in the midst of some of our trials and struggles, we're going to fail. We're going to have some failures in life. I've had plenty. 
But we need to understand that God can use our failures in discipling others as well as the successes. Our past does not disqualify us and our shame does not remove us from the task. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter what you've done in how shameful it might be. God can cleanse you from all of that and wash you as white as snow. And use you for his honor and his glory. Sometimes it's just a, it's a good. What, what we need to understand is that when we mess up. One of the things that we need to teach other people is. That when we mess up we have to own it. Repent of it. Say I'm sorry and make it right. You know that doesn't discredit us. That actually credits us. Because every one of us are going to fail. And when we try to hide it and cover it up. We're doing nothing but making a big mistake. So God can use our failures in discipling others as well as the successes. If you want to, Skip Gray says it like this, if you want to reach the next generation of disciples, you need to trust God to bring someone into your life with whom you can share all these things that he has entrusted to your stewardship. Paul was faithfully entrusting these things to Timothy. He challenged Timothy to entrust these things to faithful men who would in turn teach others. The church in the United States has been guilty of breaking the cycle for the most part. We need to make a difference. Will you today make a commitment to entrust these things to faithful men and women who will in turn teach others?